This is the Lifestyle as Medicine podcast, and I am Mike Riccio, longtime personal trainer, professional strength coach, gym owner, and most importantly, a devoted modern father and husband. I've been fortunate to learn under some of the most intelligent minds in health and fitness over the past 15 years, as well as work with amazing clients and athletes. What I've most fallen in love with over the years is the power we have over our lives, the power to decrease risk of disease and injury, the power to reach our true potential, the deep abilities the body is capable of when all aspects of health are working simultaneously. On this podcast, you will learn the importance of preventative health and how to optimize your habits to optimize your life. Hello, listeners. After a couple week break, we are back for season two of the Lifestyle as Medicine podcast. I hope everyone had a great holiday season. Happy New Year. Happy 2021. Thanks for being back with me. Thanks for listening. I'm really excited for this second season and to show you kind of what I've been working on, including what we are kicking off with. Today, you are hearing from Dr. Dan Huglum. Dr. Huglum is a doctor of physical therapy who utilizes the concepts from the Postural Restoration Institute in many of his manual therapies and techniques. PRI and their concepts are ones that we utilize quite often at my gym with the general adult population as well as with the athletic population. And at one point I reached out to them wanting one of the representatives to come on the podcast and Dr. Huglum is who they recommended. Well, the episode does not disappoint. As you'll hear in a few minutes, we get not only into defining what PRI is and what the concepts are, but how they can link to other concepts as well, such as mood and quality of life, along with how they identify and help with pain and pain symptoms and physical asymmetries. A lot to offer in this episode. Dan and I get into a couple great rabbit holes that I know you'll enjoy. Um, And in general, I know you're gonna walk away with a lot of just direct takeaways, things you'll be able to, to utilize immediately after listening. So I know you're going to enjoy it. Listen in. As always, please rate and review the episode when you are done. And uh, without further ado, let's get going. Okay, we are on. Dan, thank you so much for being with me today. No, it's my pleasure, Mike. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I, uh, this is a topic that is very near and dear to me, obviously just as a movement professional and as, you know, as a trainer and as an you know, athletic strength coach but also newly as kind of a newer student to some philosophies that we're going to talk about today. So I'd like to start with, you know, just a little background on you and what you do for a living and how you started getting into your field. Sure. I'm a physical therapist. Uh, that's my, that's my degree. And I, my undergraduate degree is athletic training. So did a lot of sports medicine, did a lot of sports related, you know, injuries and everything, played college basketball, went to a small well, it's now it's Division One. By that time, it was Division Two. Play basketball there my first two years, and um, just you know, I mean, I was like the ninth guy on the bench. I'm not going anywhere, right? Division Two, and so I, I put my efforts into studies, and so graduated with an undergraduate degree in athletic training. Went to physical therapy school in Des Moines, Iowa, and um, when I was in PT school, I was doing a, a clinical rotation in Lincoln, Nebraska, and. My recollection isn't that I necessarily chose Lincoln, Nebraska for any particular reason, other than one of my classmates grew up there and I could stay with her parents for free for two months, which if you're, you know, got student student loans and you're in graduate school, staying someplace for free is pretty sweet. So that's why I went to Lincoln, Nebraska. Well, lo and behold, I meet the founder of what would eventually be the Postural Restoration Institute, 
His name is Ron Haruska. And he was a physical therapist at that same facility. And so I met him and got exposed to some of the things that he was doing, which my first introduction actually was I was my clinical instructor was it was like the first couple of days and he was kind of going through, you know, it was in a hospital and you know, what's the manual and where do you go and lay out, lay of the land kind of thing. It was an intro. It's a, and um, Ron is just kind of there and treating patients. And so I asked my clinical instructor who who'd been out of school for 12 years. So he wasn't like, it was a new physical therapist. I said, Hey, who's that guy? And he said, Oh, that's Ron. He's a physical therapist, but I don't know what he does. <laughs> and I was like, I'm still in school. I got another year of PT school left. And I was like, how do you, how have you been out of physical therapy school for 12 years? And this guy has the same degree you do, but you don't know what he does. Like, how is that even possible? So that kind of piqued my interest. And so I got to know Ron over the course of the next two months and got exposed to a few things. But as a student, obviously it went over my head. I didn't get any of it, but I, it made me leave there with an appreciation of what I was learning in school was tip of the iceberg. So then I finished school and, and started practicing. And, and then I took my first PRI course in 2004. And at that time, there was no certification process. There was only Ron teaching. There was only probably, I'm going to guess, less than 20 courses available per year nationwide. And um, it was a chore because you had to learn everything on your own. There was really no website. There was really, to speak of really, there was no other people really taking the course. By that time, there may have been maybe 300 people who have taken courses nationwide over the course of, and he started the Institute in 2000. For 2004, he probably put on something on the order of I don't know, 50 courses, something like that, 70 courses, maybe. So I was drowning. I knew this is something that because I seen it work. I had seen it work. And I was just kind of drowning in the and trying to shift my mindset from orthopedics to neurology and how the brain is involved in musculoskeletal events. And it took me a long time to kind of wrap my head around those concepts. And so I then I took my first two courses in 2004 and didn't take anything else for two years. And then 2006, after I felt like I had a better handle on it, I started taking more courses. And and so then I got certified in PRI in 2012, started teaching for the Institute in 2016. So I pretty much do PRI pretty much all the time. So I work in Evanston, Illinois, with um, another woman who, has, who she and I met professionally through PRI and we got certified the same year in 2012, and she actually her name is Donnie, Donna Priestburn, and uh, she teaches the PRI for Pilates. And she was she was a professional dancer. She danced in you know left high after high school went to New York City and and danced in the ballet for you know I don't know six eight years until you know you kind of age out of that profession. And so she'd been using the Pilates reformer for years and years and years and years, and saw a direct link between how. PRI uses some of these concepts and how that kind of gets put into how you can dovetail that into Pilates nicely. And so she's been using PRI and Pilates for well over a decade. And um, so now she teaches how to put the PRI concepts onto a reformer as an actual class through PRI. So Don and I have been working together for about five years and it's been great. It's really accelerated our collective knowledge and usage of PRI concepts in the population we treat. So we see people from all over. I mean, Evanston, Willamette, Highland Park, Morton Grove, uh, Chicago, Deerfield, Northbrook, I mean, all over the place, you know, Buffalo Grove. So um, we've been very fortunate to be in a location. We just moved into a new space. It's big. And so it's great. And 
so yeah, it's been good. It's really, she and I work well together and we've had a really good uh, opportunity to improve our application and knowledge of this science. Fascinating. And I want to dig into PRI to start, but um, before I, I have an appreciation for, you know, the, the chance coincidence that you start your educational, at least part of your educational career with someone like Ron. Um, yeah. who, for my listeners, you know, I, you're going to gain an appreciation for this throughout this episode, but you know, Ron's a big brain, right? Ron started a lot of very, you know, very different concepts that we're going to talk about today. You know, when I started, and I've had this conversation with some other people on this podcast, but when I started my career, I was very lucky that the first people I ran into were very well-educated strength coaches. And kind of like you, it wasn't, it wasn't because I sought them out. I really did get lucky. I kind of a horseshoe, you know, stuck up me where because that was my first experience, I only sought out equal or greater levels of education going forward. I really don't know where I would be if I didn't stumble across the two mentors that I've had to this day. Yeah. So I think it's fascinating. I didn't know that about you, that, that you didn't necessarily seek out PRI or know of PRI. You just happened to be in, in the same clinic. Yeah. With Ron. Yeah, it was, and it was, I mean, the actual true story is I wasn't supposed to be in that building in Lincoln, Nebraska anyway. I had a, a separate clinical rotation set up elsewhere and um, it, it fell through at kind of last minute. And so the way this our most schools and our school did it the same way is they have like a catalog of facilities and this is the nineties, but the catalog of facilities that just routinely accept students. And this particular facility was a hospital based outpatient physical therapy clinic that had like eight physical therapists. And so they had, at that time, there was no problem being able to get a student in there. Well, I was already slated to go someplace else, and my mind fell through like two weeks before our rotation. So my recollection is like the only option I had was Lincoln, Nebraska. And yeah. um, it just was a very fortuitous sequence of events for me to be in the school that I was in, to be able to go to Lincoln when I did, to be able to, you know, keep in touch with Ron over the course of the years. And his Ron's first physical therapy hire was a classmate of mine from PT school. And he actually, you know, four, he's the one that said, Hey, you should take Ron's now teaching courses. He'll be in Illinois. You should come. And I was like, Oh yeah, 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 yeah. So it was a very fortuitous series of events that put me there. You know, and like you said, you're not seeking it out, but once you get to that point, you realize you're foolish not to, you know, glean some information from these people. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Once you have it at your disposal, it can be a dumb move to not take advantage of it. Um, Well, so let's help people define PRI a little bit. So what are some of the the baseline philosophies that that PRI is based on? And then we'll take off from there. Sure. So the Postural Restoration Institute, uh, you know, founder Ron Horoska, we kind of talked about, he kind of sees how the body works in a very it's it people say all the time oh i do holistic no this is holistic because i can draw a direct link from what's happening in your fourth ventricle of your brain to your calcaneus on the floor and be able to give you an activity that navigates that whole system and that's pri but there are three kind of main fundamental things that that pri is built off of and one of them is the human body is made asymmetrically not it with the exception i mean you have two arms and two legs beyond that the human body is not a symmetrical entity and to treat it as such is really to the detriment of the human body as a functioning system i'm talking about 
respiratory, digestive, endocrine, musculoskeletal, neurological, it's not a symmetrical system, okay? Number one. Number two is that the diaphragm is really the ruler of all things. And if your diaphragm, because you have left, two of them, left and right, and they do not function the same way, they don't work at the same time, and if they're not doing their jobs in an alternating fashion, left and right, you have musculoskeletal discord. And that's a huge thing with, with PRI, is if your diaphragm isn't functioning properly, you're gonna have issues in other joints and muscles of your body. And I mean, I know physical therapists personally that have been practicing longer than I've been alive. And they have a very difficult time with that statement because in their mind, the diaphragm only does breathing. And my point to them is, it doesn't have to. It didn't have to breathe for you at all. You have so many layers of compensatory strategies for inhalation in the interest of not dying that the body does not need the diaphragm to inhale. And for somebody to think that if you're breathing, your diaphragm is working. No. I mean, it, it might be working on a very, 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 very small level, but you can't assume everyone knows how to diaphragm, inhale with their diaphragm, because that's not what happens. Number So number two, diaphragm is a big deal. And if people are like, oh, I know how to diaphragm breathe. No, you don't. There's been research out there for 50 years about how to diaphragm breathe, and we've been taught wrong. Mm -hmm. And I'm sorry, that's just part of it. Th yeah. This is in that part of it, PRI is not breaking new ground there. It's not. PRI is using established research to be able to say, according to the research, this is diaphragm breathing. And I'll give you an example. 25 years ago in PT school, I was taught belly breathing was diaphragm breathing. It's false. The research, which is way older than 25 years, mm -hmm. will tell you that that's absolutely not the case. And but unfortunately, that's what we keep being taught. So the diaphragm, how you use it is a big deal for the musculoskeletal system. Okay. And the body, and the third thing is that all muscles work together in, in, doesn't matter how you want to define it, in chains or in patterns or in teams, however. Muscles work in what we call patterned behavior, which means if your intent is to isolate a muscle and to strengthen a muscle in isolation, that's to the detriment of the rest of the chain. And some of these concepts are based off of PNF, you know, proprioceptive neuromuscular facilitation. That concept has been around for probably 60 or 70 years. That's not new. Chains were first identified in France by a physical therapist post-World War II. So a lot of these concepts that PRI are, are talking about and using, they're not new. We didn't come up with these things. Okay? We're just applying them in a manner that might be unique. But we're using, I mean, the, the, the definition of human asymmetry all you have to do is look at a, an anatomy book. I mean, we're not made symmetrically. That's not a new concept. That's not even PRI's concept. The diaphragm's a big deal. That's not a new concept. And the research of how the diaphragm actually is used is way older than 25 years. And that muscles work together in a chain, that's not new either. So these foundational concepts are well-established, well-researched. They're not PRI-owned by any stretch of the imagination. We're just applying them in a manner that is much more succinct and, in my mind, practical for as to how the human body works, as opposed to allowing and promoting, in some cases, compensatory strategies and calling them normal. Because just because something happens a lot doesn't make it normal. Mm -hmm. Like, don't confuse common for normal. Those are not the same things. Those are the three basic concepts of PRI.
Yeah. I, well, and it's such a, it's such a fascinating thing because you're right. Most people, most people, I guess, even in the medical field, think of the body as symmetrical, right? We are two sure. equal halves. We have a left hemisphere and a right hemisphere and they, they work interchangeably in a certain way. And we've trained people that way for a long time. We've trained people in very specific yeah. sagittal bilateral pairings. So to think that the body's outside, I mean, even just the example of the diaphragms being different and breathing into one side oh, differently, yeah. you know, it's, like you said, it's not a new concept, but I would say it's a still very, very minimally known concept. Oh yeah, no, I would completely agree. It's, it's not a new concept from the idea that all you have to do is pick up an anatomy book from 400 years ago <laughs> and you can see internal asymmetry of the diaphragm because that's how, I mean, every cadaver looks, that, looks the same way. But you're right. The, uh, what does that actually mean as far as performance is concerned? Mm-hmm. That's the new idea. Right. Well, so let's go there next. And that's exactly where I wanted to go was, you know, we, we've identified that the body is naturally asymmetrical. It is naturally different. So what, how do these natural asymmetries tend to manifest? People tend to yeah. use one, do people tend to use one side more than another? Do they tend to fall into similar injury patterns if this isn't kept within a, a healthy margin of error, wherever you'd yeah. like to take that? Sure. So, I mean, let me just kind of define some of these asymmetries that we're kind of looking at and talking about. And, and the big one is the diaphragm. So the, the right diaphragm is three times thicker, it's bigger, it's stronger than the left one. And one of the big things is that the the crus or the crua of the diaphragm, which actually is the finger part of the muscle that kind of goes down and there's one on each side, the left and the right. The right one goes all the way down to L4, but the left one only goes down to L2. And a lot of people are like, oh, that doesn't make any difference. Okay, so let's take this bigger, stronger right diaphragm. Oh, by the way, because the liver sits underneath it, it makes the right diaphragm more domed all the time. A domed diaphragm is a diaphragm you can use for respiration because every time you take a breath in, that diaphragm now goes from elevated to dropped. It goes from ascended to descended. It drops. That's how you get air in. So when that happens, because the diaphragm, the, the diaphragm is domed, sits on top of the, of the liver, because the right diaphragm works as a better respirator, what's going to happen is because of its attachment to L4, it's going to orient the whole human body to the right. So it doesn't matter if you're right-handed or left-handed. It doesn't make any difference. Because of this thick, dense organ called the liver, there's no, and it sits low into the outside, there's nothing comparable on the left side to fight that off. Nothing even close. Okay? Your stomach contents, when you eat food and digest, it goes to the right. Okay? It goes down into your stomach, goes to the right. That's where it starts. You've got three lobes along on the right side, two on the left. Okay? Asymmetrical. The hemispheres of your brain are not the same size, do not have the same job, and are twisted. So even the inside of your head is twisted. Okay? So there, and there's a lot more. I mean, just sure. There's a, and particularly neurologically, the brain is grossly asymmetrical. There are different jobs on each side, okay, that your brain's responsible for. So as far as the brain and the body are concerned, you're not even side to side. Okay, now what will that will manifest as that there's a, a twist that happens below T8, throughout your eighth thoracic vertebra. 
because of this right diaphragm, because of that heavier, thicker liver, because of your stomach contents, because of the brain's twist, it takes your entire center of mass and puts it to the right. Takes your lumbar spine and turns it a little bit to the right. Now, we're not talking like turning it from noon to nine o'clock. We're not talking about that. We're talking about a preference. Okay, It puts you in your preferred position because every time the right diaphragm inhales for you, it puts more air into the left lung than the right one, which means the left lung is more often than not more inflated than the right lung at any given point in time, which means that the left lung being that it's more inflated, that fuller, bigger, inflated left lung pushes you over onto your right side. Now, if you like anytime, you, the next time, you know, if it weren't COVID, the next time you're in a, in a crowded area, you know, grocery store, mall, DMV, whatever, and you see a bunch of people standing around, you'll usually see one of four things. Somebody standing on the right leg, pretty stacked and pretty correctly top to bottom. You know, they just, they just look like they're stacked on the right side. Or somebody's second thing is people will be standing on both legs. And usually your feet are pretty wide apart. Okay. The third thing you'll see is standing the left leg and they might be tipping their upper body way to the left when they're standing in their left leg. Or the fourth thing you'll see is standing the left leg and they're sticking their left hip out to the side. It's called a hip bump. Those are the four common things you'll see. Rarely what you'll see is a stacked, correct left stance because neurology, respiration, and the musculoskeletal system that's not their preferred way to stand, okay? Now, let's add time and years and activity and a car accident and childbirth and an ankle injury and years and sports and sitting at a desk and driving, all those things, add those things up over the course of time, okay? Now you're starting to see patterns and habits and eventually compensation because there is a cost to your soft tissue if you remain in a pattern because you will because what happens is the body has to make a plan to get onto the left leg doesn't matter if you're right hand or left hand it doesn't make any difference you have to make a plan to get onto your left leg usually not all the time usually that plan is incorrect okay because your body is going to use the path of least resistance as a result the manner in which you use your left leg cannot be the same in the manner that you use your right leg. It's impossible. The manner in which you use your right arm cannot be the same as the manner in which you use your left arm. It can't be. It's impossible because of this asymmetry. So part one is you have to recognize that this asymmetry thing exists. I'm just telling you, open an anatomy book, okay? Mm -hmm. And look at the diaphragm. There's always pictures of the diaphragm. It's always drawn the same way. Right side's more domed, left one is flatter, left one is smaller, right one is bigger. Look at a cadaver, okay? That's just, that's human anatomy. The trick is, after you recognize that, is to be able to, to cultivate a program that accounts for that and then allows the right leg to get stronger in the places it's deficient in, which is not the same things the left leg is deficient in, creating a program that strengthens the left leg to manage its deficiencies, Go up the line, manage the right arm, manage the left arm for us. Just a basic strengthening program. So the more bilateral you attempt to be, the more asymmetrically 
you actually become. Okay. Mm -hmm. And so there's any, there's any number, any variety, any, I mean, there's a long list of potential things that can occur because of asymmetry. It really just depends on where's your squeaky wheel. You know, what part for you is the weakest link? And because we're all different, because we all, all have different brains, okay, that weak link varies person to person. And that's why people are like, oh, you and PRI are saying everything's linked, linked to this pattern. Yeah, because every human brain is different. How every human interprets their environment and gravity is different based on their previous experiences, which I'm sorry, yours and mine are not the same. Mm-hmm. They just cannot be. They're different. We, we have different genetics. We grew up in different households. We have different siblings. We did different things. We have different likes. We have different dislikes. We... I mean, whole series of things. As a result, it's impossible to have an all-inclusive list of things that can occur if you decide or if your brain doesn't know how to manage this asymmetry. Because it's like, okay, if you have if you have a bike that's got two wheels, okay, and on one wheel you remove 10 spokes, okay, What's the result? Well, there's a list of things. It depends on if it's the front wheel or the back wheel. Which 10 spokes are they? Is there going to be a problem with the back wheel? Well, it's different because then you have a gear in the chain. Front wheel, is it the braking system? Is it the steering? Is it the seat? So just removing 10 spokes, it depends on where those spokes, which 10 were they? Mm-hmm. And as a result, the, the damage to the bike is going to be different depending on, even though it's still 10 spokes, it's still asymmetrical. Okay. The damage to that bike is not going to be the same bike to bike because there's some variability. Now, all we know is there's going to be some damage. There's a cost. Okay. Well, that's, so it's very difficult, but there are some common things like low back pain. I mean, I can't even tell you how much low back pain and neck pain I treat over the course of a week. Okay. A lot. I mean, headaches, foot pain, hip pain. I mean, base, it really depends on of like we talked about a variety of things of where your weak link is but the trick is not and if and so what we do is i manage that injury for sure whatever that pain is how we're to manage it that soft tissue got to manage that and then part two is we have to figure out what is your asymmetry what is your compensation compensation strategy let's manage your compensation strategy and show you how to actually use your body what we say is symmetrically asymmetrical so my goal is to teach somebody how to use their asymmetrical left and right side the same way on the left and right side so asymmetrically symmetrical yeah fascinating and as you said before well one so far so so to simplify a little bit for people we are dominant towards the right side i'm going to oversimplify for some that need so we're, we're kind of overly dominant to the right side we tend to stance ourselves over the right side Yep. Because of that, our left lung is just more advantageous to take on more air, yep. which then perpetuates it, right? Because then it keeps keeps pushing us right. Yep. So I see a lot of clients, a lot of athletes that have a hard time getting themselves back to the left in a good way. Yep. And when you start stacking up years onto these asymmetries, that's where some or of our problems- Or repetitions. Yeah, or, or injuries, right? A lot of things, right? Right. Starts to come in. So, you know, let's let's start with the basic- thing that stacks up a lot and it's how societally we've changed right we technology has forced us into this seated position our mm-hmm. commute the way we uh there, there was a ted talk talking about you know there's some people spend upwards of 23 and a half hours in a seated position 
if you look at their commute to their desk, to their couch, and even in the sleeping position. So if you think about all those positions, it's upwards of of 23, you know, 22 hours a day. So, and then you talked about the diaphragm and how it should be used to help us facilitate breathing, but sitting in itself is what can limit the capacity for the diaphragm to work properly. So maybe we can start there with, you know, when the, when the diaphragm becomes inefficient due to, to our everyday posture and chosen posture, what takes over breathing? How does breathing then happen? So there's, there's really three things that the brain from a survival standpoint, there's three things your brain doesn't care how you accomplish them. Okay. One is breathing, right? Your brain doesn't care how you get air in, just get air in. I don't care. The second thing is locomotion, get from A to B. So like from a survival standpoint, run from the bear, right? Does your brain care about what your form looks like? No, just don't die. Okay. The third thing is chewing and swallowing. Your brain doesn't care if you have teeth or no teeth or neck pain or TMJ. Your brain doesn't care. Chew and swallow. Let's not die. Okay. Now, there are certain soft tissue regions of your body that cares how you do those three things. Because you can do all three of those things with compensation strategies that eventually you'll have to pay for. Okay. Let's talk about breathing. Okay. So here is a short list off the top of my head of muscles that can help you inhale. Now they're not primary, but these are muscles that have the ability to help you inhale, okay? Your upper trap, anything in your anterior neck, I'm talking scalings, digastrics, hypoglossus, whatever, tongue, pecs, back muscles, lats, QL, quadris lumborum, your psoas, because it attaches to your spine, your quads, your hamstrings, your intercostal muscles, your serratus anterior, your low trap, your glute max, your gluteus medius, your gastroc, that's a big one, your gastroc can help you inhale big time, and your toe flexors, okay? All those muscles can help put your skeleton in a position called inhalation. Now, are they directly putting air into your body? No, but they're putting you in an advantageous position to create low pressure in your lungs to have air come into your body. That's inhalation. It might be passive, or might be active. As a result, the brain has cultivated on purpose, cultivated a multitude. Oh, rectus abdominis, that's another big one. I forgot about that one. The, the body has created a huge number of potential muscles that can help you inhale because your brain wants to not die, okay? The problem is the list that I just gave you are all are primarily, with the exception of your scalings, which is technically a primary inhaler, and your intercostals, your internal and external intercostals, they're primary inhalers and exhalers. The rest of the list are all compensatory, okay? Now, if you're doing something strenuous, you should be using compensatory strategies to breathe. Absolutely, because your respiration rate increases. Research will show you that diaphragm breathing is about 8 to 12 breaths a minute, okay, if you're actually using your diaphragm. Actually, most research says 5 to 7 breaths a minute, okay? Mm-hmm. So sitting isn't actually the problem. It's how we sit, that's the problem okay and so that's where people let people say a lot of times oh sitting is the new smoking no how you sit is the problem because if you sit and you sit with your back either with a a, because i mean i can't even tell you the number of times i've told people to throw away their lumbar roll because the lumbar roll because the normal lumbar spine position is only 30 degrees curve it's not like it's a lot thoracic spine is about 40 degrees 
cervical spine's 30 degrees. So if you don't have a 30 degree forward curve, 40 degree backward curve, and a third, only 30, not 50, 30 degree forward curve of your lumbar spine, you're not neutral, which means that you're gonna have to cheat to do most everything, okay? If you have a lumbar roll in your back, that puts you up greater than 30 degrees. As a result, your rib cage is now in a position of inhalation, that's external rotation. Your thoracic spine has come forward, your rib cages come from backwards to forwards, that puts you in a position that guarantees you your diaphragm cannot inhale for you, which means now you're left to cheat, okay? <clears throat> I mean, it could be any of the ones I listed, and I'm sure there are others that I didn't list, but that's what sitting wrong does for you. What you need to do is you need to sit and you should feel like the bottom of your sternum, just draw a line from the bottom of your sternum all the way around to your back, okay? That's your eighth vertebrae in your back, bottom of your sternum. That's where you should be resting. The chair should be holding you up in two places, okay? Your butt, which is easy because you're sitting on your ischial tuberosities, and your bra line. So if you feel like, not your shoulder blades, not your low back, your bra line. So that's about T8, okay? Your eighth thoracic vertebra. If you don't feel like the chair is holding you up there and your ischial seats, not your pubis, that's the front of your pelvis. I'm talking about the back of your pelvis. If you're not feeling supported in those two areas, it's impossible to breathe into your diaphragm. Now, I'm not saying sitting 23 and a half hours a day is a good thing. What I'm saying is that if you happen to be sitting 23 and a half hours a day, mm -hmm. let's make sure you can use your diaphragm for those hours, particularly when you're awake, because what you do when you're awake dictates what you do when you're sleeping. So if you're sitting for 16 hours and you're not using your diaphragm, it is impossible to be using your diaphragm to breathe in at night. Here's the big deal, okay? The diaphragm is the link to the parasympathetic nervous system. If you want heart rate variability, you'd better be on board with your diaphragm breathing because if your diaphragm is not being the main respiration tool at rest to breathe in, your parasympathetic nervous activity is not working, which means your sympathetic nervous activity is, which means that you're not resting and digesting. That means that you're sitting in a chair fighting and flighting. You're digesting your food, fighting and flighting. You're sleeping in fight or flight because you can't access your diaphragm. And the reason a lot of people can't access their diaphragm is the posture of their rib cage and their spine. So the big deal is you have to get what's called thoracic kyphosis because that's normal. 40 degrees is normal. If you don't have 40 degrees of thoracic kyphosis, you're not neutral, which means that your thoracic diaphragm to breathe in with can't work, which means that you are sympathetically driven as you're resting. Let's spin that forward to the strength and conditioning community. Okay, you do a workout. You do not ever access your, your diaphragm for the next 48 hours. That means that the muscles you use to work out with are the muscles you're attempting to rest and relax with, which means they're never off, which means you didn't recover, which means your next workout is not going to be as effective because you didn't rest and recover, which means you're going to hit a plateau for, first or injure. The definition of an overuse injury is when muscles work too hard. Why would they work too hard? Because they never get shut, get shut off. Why would they get shut off? Because you can't transition from sympathetic activity to parasympathetic activity because you don't access your diaphragm. That's PRI. I have a lot that I need, want to need to go back to. But before I do, I don't want to miss the link you just made to something. 
your sympathetic nervous system and the ability. So, you know, what it's there for the ability to, to become alert because we need to defensively Correct. to whether it's to save ourselves or just to live longer or to take in a breath that, you know, whatever it might be. If we can't come down from that, now we're talking about the stress side of things, which can manifest sure. as emotional stress, disordered eating. There's a lot of things that can come from an overactive sympathetic nervous system. So, and I, whether we really want to dig into this or not, we can, but it's, you know, there's this link. Now we've linked posture with some really key lifestyle things with how can you be mm-hmm. calm? Can you be cool headed? That can link into, and this is a lot of what I, I get into just to kind of link our worlds a bit here, but you know, your mood every day, cognitive ability, the ability to make good decisions. A lot of this is linked to the ability to smoothly transition back and forth between your sympathetic and your parasympathetic nervous system. So, so if our posture alone, and I use posture in a general term, I guess right now, but if our posture is, is taking us out of the ability to ever become calm to rest and digest, as you well said, you know, we, we might be missing out on the ability to ever, and you said muscle recovery is a big one to sleep, which is another way that we recover. And then just to be clear headed enough to make good decisions that might lead back yeah. to even choosing to do the exercises every day we might need to, to, to right. take ourselves out of these things. And we'll get into the rehab side in a second too, of course. So I didn't want to miss that link. Cause I think that's a really, really important link for people that come in here and say, yeah. I came in here because my knee hurt or because I said, I want to get stronger. And you're talking about my stress levels. Yeah. And so a lot of people will feel like, if I don't work out, I can't manage my stress, right? I'm sure you hear that a lot. I, oh, yeah. I can't. I don't, I don't work out when I stress. Okay, so here's what's happening, okay? They're already sympathetically driven. When they get in and get a workout in, their sympathetic drive increases, and rightfully so. It should. So let's say let's say the sympathetic tone walking in the door is a seven. It should be a zero, okay? They'll walk in at a seven. They get a workout. Their sympathetic drive gets to a nine. When they're done, it gets back down to a seven. They feel that nine to a seven drop, mm-hmm. and they think that's managing their tone, their nervousness, their anxiety, whatever they're trying to manage. No, you get down to a zero, okay? Because if you can get down to a zero, that's when your parasympathetic, I'm just using arbitrary numbers, obviously, but yes, right. that's when your parasympathetic activity can increase. Because yeah. you want your parasympathetic activity to be a five, okay? You don't want it to be a nine, right? But you want to be able to get through then downregulate your parasympathetic activity, increase your sympathetic activity, but you don't want to live at a seven, eight or nine. You want to be like a five or six or seven yep. and then get back out of it. There has to be this pendular swing side to side. Now you can't get this pendular swing in the absence of diaphragm activity. It doesn't matter if, cause I've had people who are like, Oh no, I'm calm. Okay. Why is your neck tight? Oh, I just carry my stress there. Well, then you're not calm by definition. You know, so that that's a huge, huge thing because you can't manage stress in the absence of a parasympathetic system that works. And conveniently, every human has access to their own parasympathetic nervous system. It's called diaphragm breathing. The problem is, in my this is just my opinion, but I've researched to back this up. We've been taught wrong how to diaphragm breathe. So then are we actually managing our stress levels? No, because we're not taught right. Right. And the research behind diaphragm breathing is, like I said, it's not new. It's 20 to 30 years old. 
It's just how, so, like I'm just telling you in PT school, they blatantly ignored the research. I'm just going to tell you, okay? Some of it wasn't fleshed out, but some of it was. And uh, so here's the secret to diaphragm breathing, okay? You have to exhale out first, and you have to get all the air out, mm-hmm. okay? If you can't exhale all the air out, you have not properly positioned the diaphragm to be your inhaler on your next inhale. You can't put air into a full tank, okay? You need to empty the tank first. That's an exhale. My suggestion then is to pause three to five seconds. Make your brain register the fact that you are out of air, because that's new. You haven't been out of air before. Get all the air out, pause, and just be like, oh, yeah, this kind of stinks. All right. And then take a slow breath in through your nose. And the reason is that should take you in the neighborhood of five to ten seconds. Okay, the reason why we exaggerated in that manner is because diaphragm breathing is only about eight to 12 breaths a minute. So if your respiration rate is 15, not diaphragm breathing, not parasympathetic. Okay, there's a whole and we're not even talking about the cascade of hormonal fluid dynamics, brain activity, cerebral spinal fluid, corpus callosum nephrology, GI, digestion, psychology. We're not talking about any of that stuff. I mean, that's a whole different podcast that would take mm-hmm. us hours to get through. Right. The value of diaphragm breathing cannot be over. And I'm just going to tell you, I hear all the time. I get people like probably listening to this podcast who are saying, no, no, no. I either do or I instruct proper diaphragm breathing. Okay, fine. If it's not framed around the idea of a full exhale, followed by a pause, followed by a slow breath in through your nose, you're going to have to explain to me, because that's that's all. That's just research. That's not PRI. That's research. You're going to have to explain to me how you can get diaphragm breathing without putting the diaphragm in a position to do its job. Because it's a muscle. It's the only skeletal muscle innervated by cranial nerves that you can control. And the reason right. for that is it's a diaphragm is a gateway to your brainstem. That's your parasympathetic nervous system. So therefore, every human has the ability to influence their parasympathetic nervous system should you choose to or choose not to. And that's okay. Choosing not to, in some cases, you should be sympathetic. That's totally fine. But you have to be able to get out of it. Yeah. Well, and and at the the lightest cause, just some light movement before we get into the, the more technical ways. Just, just people moving in the right way can help too. You know, I do metabolic testing here at the facility. And one of the most interesting things that I teach some of the newer trainers is if you watch people when they get on, you look at their respiratory exchange ratio. So you look at the other, the ratio between oxygen and carbon dioxide. And when they first pop on the treadmill, most people are high. Most people, it's the same number that you are going to see at the end when exertion is at its most, when you maxed out. People are walking in the door like that. So just proving your point of this high sympathetic state, but like clockwork, because every every metabolic test, it's a linear race, so everything starts very low. So everyone's on a treadmill at 2.0, and they're going to spend a few minutes there. Everyone drops, and everyone settles. And they haven't even worked into more technical this is just this is just walking. This is just getting right. you some blood flow and you know getting some natural, just not natural, but uh, but whatever your natural is just breathing going. Yeah. 
So um, I yeah, just, again, to prove the point in a different way of, of why people are in this state. And it might not be emotional stress. So like we're saying, it could be postural stress. That might right. be why people are walking into my facility in that state. That's a well-documented thing that you're talking about on the, on the treadmill. I mean, yeah, that's well proven in research. Now, here's the reason why. So once they, so they're walking in this hyperinflated, unknowingly sympathetically driven state, okay? You get them on that treadmill, which makes their arm swing, okay? Mm -hmm. As soon as they get an arm swing, they have an easier time getting their rib cage. It's alternating. You have internal rib cage rotation on one side, external on the other. Well, the internally rotated rib cage is the diaphragm taking your next breath in. And your, their rib cage is now alternating in this internal, external fashion. This pumping quality of the rib cage. Heel strike is a pumping quality for their pelvis, okay? This alternating pumping mechanics is driving. It's now going to put them into a better parasympathetic state. So that's why you see everything drop, because now they have alternating pumping mechanics. And it, our goal is to have them walk in like that. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? So, yeah, that's. That's one of the big things is trying to get that alternating mechanics without needing a treadmill or, or walking to be able to get there. You should be able to get there on your own. Right. But and that, that's where a lot of times, I mean, I'm sure you've heard this too, where people are like, listen, if I don't go for a run every day, I'm a bear to deal with. Yeah, because the only way they can drop their sympathetic tone is alternating rhythmical pumping mechanics. They got to get air of their brain, you know, yeah. and they got to pump it in there with alternating ribcage mechanics, alternating heel strike, pelvic floor pumping mechanics, because it makes them feel better when they're done, because they can actually come down. They feel that come down. Right. We just got to have them walk in the door that way, you know? And this takes the advice of everyone should take a short walk every once in a while to a new height, right? Because everyone, Absolutely. everyone thinks calorie burn. I mean, and, and calories are, they're a thing. I'm not saying sure. they're not a thing, but it's, but it's a small, it's a small part of a bigger equation. Yeah. And this is where bridging the gap between what you do and what I do becomes important because I need, uh, and all my clients, but my, I work, I like work with athletes. I need them to come in the door ready to progress For and sure. they can't progress if they're walking in and I have to do, which I can't do as well as you can. If I have to do my job just to get them back to a, a decent state because right. their body's not ready to be progressed, especially not when it comes to the higher end athletes, my pro basketball players sure. come in the door, they can't walk in that way. So how do we, how do we reset them? How do we get people to be at a better state initially? So they are in a better position to do what they think they're doing in my gym, which is getting stronger, faster, better yeah. endurance, lose weight. Yeah. How do we, how do they increase their chances of doing that by being in a better position, walking in the door? Yeah. Yeah. So that's, that's the question, isn't Depends. it? And so yeah. that, right. And that would require a longer answer than I'm, what I'm going to give you. But there's a couple of things. One is, to learn how to sit with what we call rib cage retraction. We talked about that a little bit to make sure that you can feel and perceive that that T8 is going backwards. Now you can sit on your right leg, you can sit on your left leg, doesn't make a difference. You should alternate when you're sitting, you shouldn't sit in one spot, you should be moving around. You want your scapulas off the chair so you can reach with your arms, okay? But one is being able to sit and stand correctly with what we call rib cage retraction. Be able to do the same thing on the left leg and on the right leg. Number two is you need to be able to reach, okay? Now, here's the, here's the trick. Now, I'm not talking about, like, pushing an object or I'm not talking about bet, I'm not talking about the weight room, per se. Mm -hmm. But you should be able to reach with an arm, either one, and have your arm go forward 
but have your rib cage go backwards. Because if you reach with your arm and your rib cage goes forward at the same time, that's not actually reaching. That's bending forward. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, there are some cases you should do that, but you shouldn't do that if you're parasympathetic. So you need to save some of those things for when you need them. Like if I'm going to push a sled, I want my whole body to go forward. I don't necessarily want my rib cage to go backwards. But if I spent the whole day with my mouse on my computer, and every time I move my mouse forward, my whole body went forward as if I was pushing a sled. Now I come to do the sled, my body's already out of gas because I just got done pushing the sled called the mouse all day long because I didn't know how to separate my rib cage from my arm. Okay. So number two, reaching without your body going forward. Okay. So number one, stand and sit. We'll call it correctly, which means you have to get your whole center of gravity on one side and your whole center of gravity on the other side. Okay. Reaching without your body coming forward. And number three, I would say would be be able to breathe in through your nose. So research has shown that if you can breathe in through your left nostril, there's a thing called cycle breathing, cyclical nasal breathing. And that happens naturally. And it takes anywhere from 90 minutes to two hours, right? the back, 30 minutes to two hours. And it cycles where your dominant nose goes from your left to your right and back again. Okay. Your parasympathetic nose is your left nostril. So I've had some people just over the course of the day, mm. just who use their thumb and just kind of plug their right nostril to be able to get air in more on the left side, just to sit, because what that, and you sit for like five minutes, you don't have to be for there forever, but just that by itself can help decrease the tone. So, I mean, be able to breathe in through your nose, be able to get on your left and right side correctly, and be able to get your, your ability to reach without your whole body moving forward. Those are three pretty basic things that if we can accomplish those three things over the course of the day, you're going to increase your parasympathetic activity. Here's the other thing that, is really kind of lost is the concept of midline. Mm-hmm. We've been told the midline of our body is like straight through our forehead, through our nose, through our sternum, through our middle of our pelvis. And so you've got one arm on each leg, one arm and a leg on each side. Okay. The, you actually have two midlines. One midline goes from the middle of your calcaneus, your heel, through your knee, through the middle of your hip, through your chest, through your collarbone, and through that eye on the same side. That's one midline. You have the same midline on the other side, which means that your body has to get to that midline. Because the whole point is the body should not be walking like a Lego character straight down the middle, okay? You have to shift your center of mass all the way to one side, stay there, take your next step, and then shift your weight all the way over the other side. That's called lateralization, going left and right. The absence of lateralization is sympathetic activity. So when I say stand and sit correctly, I mean lateralizing to one hemisphere of your body and to the other hemisphere of your body. That's called pendular, pendulum, pendular activity side to side. So you can do that in a chair. So that means in a chair, you're achieving pendular activity in a similar fashion you would do when you're walking. Standing still, you can like in line, you can achieve pendular activity as if you would do when you're walking, even though you're not going anywhere. And then the goal is to be able to achieve pendular activity while you're walking. If you can do pendular activity side to side, going from one hemisphere of your body, one midline to the other, you can't do that unless you have parasympathetic diaphragm inhalation. 
So that's really, for me, the key for every single person I see. Because I see people come in, they come in to see me because they usually have pain, right? That's usually their entry point to me. So that's really my goal is that I, if I can get them to do that over the course of their day, what I'll tell them is, listen, if you can hold off on your workouts for like three weeks so we can recalibrate some of this stuff, and then I have no problem turning them back. Let's get you back to whatever you want to do in, I don't care whether, what is that? So weight room, kickboxing, spin class. I don't care what that basketball, racquetball, I don't care what that is. Because it's the problem isn't actually those activities. The problem is you use your body the same way during those activities during the rest of your day. So I use, a, I use an analogy all the time called, I just say Batman and Bruce Wayne. Now, I don't have a good female analogy because nobody knows who who Barbara Gordon is. Barbara Gordon is Batgirl, okay? But nobody knows that. So Bruce Wayne and Batman. Okay. We should live our lives, 95% of our lives should be as Bruce Wayne. Parasympathetic, chill, mild-mannered, hanging out, parasympathetic. The problem is we spend spend 95% of our day as Batman. Sympathetic extension driven non-diaphragm breathing okay now there's a cost to that ask batman okay there's a cost to living as batman too much your soft tissue pays a price now if you can downshift from batman to bruce wayne and then back up to batman and then downshift to bruce wayne that's pendulum right going from one to the other that's the pendulum we're talking about okay that's a mental pendulum that's a psychological pendulum that is a emotional pendulum. Pendulums are good. Swings are good. Okay. If you can manage that musculoskeletal pendulum through parasympathetic diaphragm activity, it makes you a better Batman. The key to being a better, uh, so I treat a decent amount of power lifters. Okay. The key to being a better competitive power lifter is how good you are when you're not powerlifting. If you don't have the ability to recover post-workout to be Bruce Wayne, you are not going to be a very successful long-term Batman. Okay? Yeah. Yep. That's the secret. So those are just kind of three things. If we can get you to, to alternate side to side, left and right, standing and sitting, reaching without with your arm, without your body going forward too, and then get better nasal breathing, particularly breath in through your left nostril, because that's a pendulum too. This nasal breathing is a pendulum too. Okay. You it's you can't really get pendulum activity in your system in the absence of parasympathetic activity. And parasympathetic activity, the king of that jungle is the diaphragm. Yeah. Yeah. It's, again, I can't miss the opportunity to to connect the idea of why we can't work out at, at, as Batman all the time. You know, why every single workout can't be to your max and to like right. everything you do. Because if you if you have some light and medium workouts, your your higher end ones are more effective and they Absolutely. do what they're supposed to do. It's so, pendulum, right? It's another form of a pendulum. Yeah. You know? That's yeah. Just that concept of and I and I don't think people appreciate that in the weight room, right? No. The, that you can't be Batman all the time. Even when it's time to be Batman, you can't be like full fledged Batman, right? Yep. There are pendulum activities as Batman. That's that's a huge concept that I think people, a lot of people miss in a weight room activity that they're like, even powerlifters, they have cycles, right? They cycle through their heavier parts of their, 
of their cycle, a medium part and a low part, and they cycle through because you're exactly right. You can't be maximum Batman all the time. Right. I mean, there's a time to be maximum Batman, but there is a low, medium, and high Batman, and you need to cycle pendulum your way through those because I think that's that's really a big deal is to be able to, is to, be able to appreciate a pendulum activity in Batman. That's huge. I completely agree. Yeah, I, I love it. And there's a million ways you could use that, right? Just it's going back to stress and the idea of that. If yeah, you got to stay low, you got to somehow find a way to get low. And that's where vacations yeah. might come in. And that's where For these sure. things are. I, I'm at a conversation with another person on this podcast about the idea of how, you know, Europe does a really good job of shutting down in August, yeah. you know, and they kind of force as society, they all agree together. Okay. Even business to business competitors, yeah. like, hey, well, we're both going to shut down. So don't worry about it. And at least they get this reset button and it's, it's life periodization is yeah. really what it is. It's finding a way to get a lull this way. You can really be at your, yeah. at your, at a better high. Otherwise everything just starts to meet in the middle because you're yeah. high. You never get to a good high because you cap out and because yeah. you're already too stimulated, you can't get to a good low. Yeah. So now you're just an even keel negative for the lack of that's a better right. word. And that's exactly right. It cancels each other out. And that's the value. And that's, Europe does as good a job of, of anybody as maintaining a pendular activity. They get up and they get down and they get up and they ramp up and they ramp down. And you can't appreciate the high if you didn't get a low. Yeah. And you can't value the low if you didn't get to a high, you know? Yeah, I agree. I'm right there with you. Ryan, my business partner, Ryan, who, who you also know, uh, you know, he'll joke because when I do some of these metabolic tests, to initially, the people, the type of person that wants to do the metabolic test is usually a higher performer. For sure. You, but in the past, I bring an appreciation for lipid efficiency and, and the other side. But but usually that's who comes in because they have an idea of what the test is going to be. Yeah. So you know, he goes, let me guess. You you had to tell them that they had to do more low zone stuff. You know, and it's it's a joke <laughs> because that's you know, the test can be so much more, but typically I'm getting a lot of people who are who want to lose weight yet they are working so high zone all the time. I have to say, great, right. I'm glad you're doing that. I'm not saying don't do that. I'm saying also spend time over here. Yeah. And the reason I bring that back up again is because this is the connection between you and I, again, before, between why from a rehab standpoint, and first of all, when I say that, if people have pain, if people even have just discomfort, they need to go see you. If my local listeners, you need to go see, you need to get to have instant because it's worth it. And this is why. But for everybody, like this is the connection between all of it is that if we can get you to, to spend a little more time on the low, it'll help you posturally too, because it'll start to calm your system down. Well, you get your body to kind of say, okay, I'm going to go back to the way I should be working. Um, yeah. if, you, if you aren't too far gone to the point where obviously, again, they need to come in and, and see you because they're going to need to reset. Yeah. Yeah. It, there is that give and take. And, and most of the time, like I said, the time I, the, by the time somebody sees me, there is some kind of soft tissue that has paid the price, right? right? But the, like you said, the objective isn't, the objective, the objective shouldn't be that you have to spend X amount of minutes every session to get them to just get into a state of parasympathetic something. Yes. So you can then get them back up again, ramp them back up again. That's not how it should work. Now they might not have pain. They might not, have, but the biggest advice I give these powerlifters is you have to exit every workout as Bruce Wayne. So I give them a couple of things that they can do to really drive their sympathetic tone down, to really increase their sagittal flexion from a global holistic top to bottom system wide event. 
to foster as much diaphragm inhalation as we can so that they're leaving that session as down-regulated Batman as we can. Yes. And then, you know, just sprinkle in one or two things. Then we, then we have a conversation about this pendular activity, right? To make sure that as during the time between, you know, workout one, workout two, you know, during that time, they can access this pendulum swing from left to right so that when they get back in the weight room, they can then jump right in, you know, put all four wheels on the ground, let's go, as opposed to, you know, that really kind of devalues their time with you. If you have to spend 10 minutes every time getting them to stop being sympathetic, you know? Com- completely agree. And to your point that you just made, that pain, pain is a spectrum, right? I'd say I'll, right. by, exactly. by, think asymmetry is, is painless, is asymptomatic until it's not. And like you said, most it's people... Not. Most people probably need to see you before pain comes. Like that's, you could could give a lot of value to people before that. Those people typically end up in our laps only because they didn't know they needed it. Because we we had to introduce it, it wasn't known. But by the time it becomes pain, that was just the last straw. It wasn't the first straw. Right, yeah. It's not that, and you're not, and I know you're not saying this, it's not too late, that's not the statement. No, no, no. That's not it. No, of course not, right. Yeah, right. But it's it's very difficult. Like we could t- I could take anybody off the street, pull them into my office, and they're pain free, right? Show them this asymmetry, and have the conversation of this asymmetry will limit your performance. Well, if their performance is I go to kickboxing three times a week and I feel good about it, and like I'm pretty okay, the motivation isn't there. Okay, so usually the motivation is for me it's either pain, for you it's a higher end performance. Now. You take your elite level athlete, you show them this asymmetry and you're like, does it make sense to you that your efficiency, if your efficiency improves left side to right side, your performance will increase. Well, for that high level performer, they know two tenths of a second matters. Yes. That's an easy sell. The hard part are the people in between, right? Yep. It's everybody else because they're like, I'm not motivated to spend three minutes, five times a day to recalibrate myself from the inside out, unless I have to. So you're exactly right. That'd be great. It's just that there has to be that motivating, you know, spark. So anyways. Yeah. Well, I I think we did a good job today of uh, at least maybe, maybe creating the logic behind what could become motivation for this. You know, and and I, the only point we probably didn't get to big time, but I think we did at the same time was prevention. And, you know, if we can talk about how to not get to that pain point, how to, how to maybe stay out of your office, it's starting to move more and move better and just move differently yeah. to, to try to stay in that, that good margin of error. Because like we just said, everyone's in a margin of error. Everyone's yeah. in an asymmetry no matter what. It doesn't matter. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the big thing for me is if we can get people to exhale more air out of their bodies and move to your point, mm-hmm. if we can do those two things on a more regular basis – people are going to feel a lot better awesome. because those are the two big things. You have to move and you have to exhale because honestly they go hand in hand. Yeah. If you exhale all the air out, you have the ability to rotate. Well, rotation is movement. You can't move without rotation. Right. right. So I completely agree. If, if, if people left this podcast with two things, exhale more air out. And like you said, move. Well, I think we've done our job. <laughs> Awesome. And well, I, I think people got that. 
Well, and on that note, I want to be respectful of your time because anything else I have right now would be another hour. Um, <laughs> so, you know, I, I think maybe we'll, uh, maybe in a few months we'll revisit and do a round two because I think there's a lot of ways we could take great. this. But for today, I want to say thank you for being on and I want to tell people how they can find you. So what's the best way for people to find you? And I'll put it in the show notes. Okay. So um, our, our office in Evanston, it's, it's called Pilates Central and Wellness. Um, the phone number there is 847-251. 1539 and uh, i have a website it's it's hoglumpt.com so h-o-u-g-l-u-m-p-t as in physical therapy hoglumpt.com and my email address is dan at hoglumpt.com if they want to get a hold of me awesome listeners i will have all that in the show notes on the website so uh if it went by too quick you can go find it and i'll direct links to all those as well awesome well i appreciate it thanks for having me on Dan, it, it was a pleasure. Um, as always with PRI, I just keep learning too as, as I go. So it was fascinating for me and I know it was fascinating for listeners. If you want to just hold on for one sec for listeners, thank you very much as always. And I will see you next week. Thank you for listening to the Lifestyle as Medicine podcast. Find more episodes like this at www.lifestyleasmedicinepodcast.com and visit www.mar.com healthandperformance.com and at Mar Health and Performance on both Facebook and Instagram for more great content and information about programs. Have a great day and see you next time.